Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 23. This week, we talk with Mads Christensen about Web Essentials, Sidewaffle, and Extending Visual Studio. Get WinJS everywhere. How to salt your passwords to get the flavor just right. Build your own authenticator and more. Hey, Carl, I see that you're going to be at a uh, code camp coming up. Yep. In about two weeks, I'm going to be at the Twin Cities Code Camp in Minneapolis. And I'm going to be talking about Cortana and integrating uh, voice recognition within your Windows phone apps. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, cool. Yeah, if, if anybody uh, reaches out to me, I'll be carrying stickers and maybe even a little bit more free swag. So uh, come check out my uh, presentation. And if not, just hit me up for a sticker or something. Okay. You'll have to give me the uh, abbreviated version after you do that presentation because <laughs> I want to see that. I'd love to integrate with Cortana. It's really fun working with voice. Um, that's it. And it always makes a great demo too. There's a lot of ways you can have a lot of fun with it. Okay. Yeah. I'm working on an app right now. And uh, every once in a while, it, I actually recorded my own voice temporarily for, for some, some prompts. So it ends up speaking to me while I'm sitting there and it's, it's pretty comical, but if I can integrate with Cortana, that'd be great. So I want to talk to you about that. Yeah, no problem. Yep. So we have a great guest today. So we have Mads. Christensen. He's a senior program manager on the ASP.NET and web tools team. How's it going, Mads? Hey, I'm good. How are you doing? Good, good. Glad to have you on the show. I've actually, uh, uh, I've seen your name everywhere, like all the different uh, projects that I've been looking at. I've actually seen your name on it. So somehow you've gotten your name on a little bit of everything, some really cool stuff too. So I'm really excited to talk to you about a few of these things. And then uh, last week, Carl uh, wouldn't stop talking about uh, Sidewaffle before, <laughs> during, and after the show. So we're definitely excited to talk about that as well. So you want to give us uh, just a, a quick uh, uh, a quick background on yourself for people who don't know who you are? Yeah, sure. Um, I've been a web developer since um, since the first tech bubble, so late 90s, <laughs> and uh, building websites, uh, classic ASP, a little bit of PHP, and I've been doing that for... Um, more than 10 years. And then almost four years ago, I joined the the uh, team here at Microsoft for building uh, the web tooling in Visual Studio. So I got I get to build the same tools that uh, I've been using for many, many years. Um, so that's kind of cool. And um, I've been doing that for almost four years in the same position. And uh, so everything that has to do with sort of ASP.NET web tooling, but also like all sort of front-end web tooling. So HTML, CSS, JavaScript, less SAS, CoffeeScript, all that sort of stuff um, is something that I work on. And uh, that's sort of, I have a team here and we're working on all sorts of uh, fun things and new exciting things as well that hopefully we're going to talk about today as well. Okay, cool. Yeah, looking forward to talking to you. But first, let's jump into the news. So Carl, I see WinJS everywhere. Yes. And uh, what's really exciting is a, a lot of people don't understand that WinJS, which is what runs like the Windows Store apps, mm -hmm. um, can also run in your browser. You can build websites with them. And uh, just recently it was announced that WinJS 3.0 came out. And the big milestone here is it's pretty much runs spot on everywhere. In the past, they've had a little bit of issues running on like Safari on the Mac or on Android. And uh, they've got all, all that cleaned up now. So if you want to write uh, a Windows Store app uh, with the same code that you have for uh, your website or your web app, uh, that's a lot easier now. So you can use all the controls that you normally would in WinJS on the web. Yeah, I was going to say this gives you a whole set of controls. There's there's like a, um, you know, all the all the basic controls and some advanced controls. And it's a lot of the stuff that you'd be familiar with on Windows and Windows Phone, but you can use these right in a browser and actually 
We'll include the link to this, but if you if you go to the WinJS site, there's actually a demo where you can actually look at all the different controls there and just run them right on the web. And now it uh, you know, it's regardless of browser, this will still work. So, you know, if you really want to have kind of a if you really like the the experience that you get in in Windows 8 and Windows Phone 8, you can start to replicate that across different environments. So I, I think this is pretty cool. I I was uh one thing I was curious about because my my biggest complaint about WinJS is the lack of integration with some of these other tools, particularly Angular. I was working on a Angular project and I wanted to use some of the stuff and some of the controls that you get work great with Angular and some not so good. And there's some shims that you can get out there. So I so I saw that uh, WinJS version three was out. So I, I dug into it a little bit more, hoping that this integration was better. And I, I think it's improved a little bit, but it looks like um if you go to the GitHub page, you first of all, you can see all the source code out there and, and do pull requests and file issues and things like that. But you can also um, you can look at the roadmap and the roadmap actually shows that there are plans to start to work better with some of these other libraries. So, you know, even if if you want to get started on something with WinJS today, um, these third party libraries, I think the the integration and and the compatibility with those is just going to get better over time. I, I wasn't sure if that was something you had looked into, Carl, if you've ever tried to use this with any other libraries, especially not Angular. Yeah. Um, I, I've been really interested in I don't know, looking into this for a future project that I have uh, coming up, but uh, yeah, I haven't had a chance to get into Angular much. OK, yeah, it's uh, they're going to they're going to improve the interoperability across the board because this was meant mm-hmm. you can just use WinJS by itself and it provides, you know, binding and, and just about anything that you would need. Um, so, you know, it's just going to being able to use some of these other libraries is going to, is going to start to enhance that, but you can certainly get started today. And and this is actually a really, really powerful library just by itself. So this is, this is really good news. Um, and then next on our list here, you actually have an article from our guest. <laughs> you want to talk about this <laughs> optimizing static websites hosted on IAS. I guess I'll introduce this a bit and then pass it on to Mads, but, sure. um, w- w- both of us, we're really big on static websites mm-hmm. and uh, we both run static websites off of Azure, which uses IAS as a backend. So I was pretty excited that uh, uh, Mads here had an article talk about just performance optimizing, you know, static websites inside IASS, which sometimes um, if you're not used to, it can be a little bit of a dark art. So mm-hmm. uh, Mads, can you tell us a little bit more what you were trying to get across with this? Yeah. So the, the idea of, of, um, well, the problem that I was running into when I build static websites is I want to make sure that if I if I build a website that I want other people to contribute to and I have the code up on GitHub and I want everyone to be able to contribute, you know, I, I don't want anything that's uh, a specific server-side technology. So there's nothing ASP.NET involved in my website, for instance. So that means that everyone can participate and, uh, you know, just run it off of the file system and everything is great. Uh, but the problem, you know, is... I, I ran into was uh, what do you do when you want to performance optimize these things? So I've been I've been always doing a lot of uh, optimizations and given a lot of talks over the past seven eight years or so on how to do that on ASP.NET. But one of the the, the major problems that I run into is uh, with static sites or how do you minify your HTML? How do you create long expiration uh, on your static resources? Because for doing so, you need to fingerprint them. So that's a cache browser cache busting technique, where basically, if you have a style sheet that you link to from a from a web page using the link tag, uh, you want to make sure that there's a version number in that URL pointing to the 
to your style sheet. And so how do you manually, or sorry, no, not manually, <laughs> how do you automatically change that version number every time the style sheet file changes on disk? And with a static website, there really is no good way. I mean, you could use something, uh, Grunt uh, or Gulp, do some some task runners to help you out with that. But it's really not easy to do after the fact, after you build the website. Those tools are usually something you have to set up from the get-go. Otherwise, it's really hairy to to kind of retrofit in. So my idea was, hey, let's just make the server do that lifting. And so I just created a NuGet package that uh, handles minification and long expiration uh, for static HTML files and static pages like that. So the idea is that, hey, when you're a developer on a Mac or whatever you're on, you can still just serve everything up using the static files. It's just .html files. But as soon as you deploy it to an to IIS, whether that's your own IIS or Azure or wherever it is, then this NuGet package kicks in and starts optimizing uh, your HTML. And so that was one of the, the key uh, things I had because I already kind of found the solution to how do you deal with like minification of CSS and JavaScript and so on. Uh, again, we can use all these uh, grunt uh, or gulp tasks to do that for us, but we can also let the server do that. So what I have is on Azure, I have a few site extensions which are free to use. Any website on Azure, you can go to the new portal and say, you know, add a site extension. I have two of them. One of them minifies all JS and CSS files and another one minifies all my images. And by minifying images, I mean like lossless compression. Um, so it doesn't actually affect uh, the quality of the image, just uh, shaves off any um, any additional weight that's not needed. So that's really, really cool. And that means that I can keep my source code lean and clean and easy to understand and let the server do the optimizations automatically. So I can keep, I don't have to worry about that uh, aspect when I actually code, which is really nice. Oh, that's great. I just looked at my website and yeah, I'm not doing any of this. So it's a static site, but the you know, all the referenced CSS files and, and other files are, um, you know, there, there's not anything special hand happening there. So I don't know if, if the browser is caching them and if it is caching them, then it's actually an issue because whenever I update, if I were to update the CSS, everybody's going to hit, have to hit F5 for it to, uh, sort of, you know, refresh that cache. Yeah, that's right. So the NuGet package here kind of fixes that. And uh, it also supports like CDNs. So if you want to, if you want to, you know, put your images and, Mm -hmm. style sheets and JavaScript on CDNs, uh, then that's completely built in. It's just an app setting in web config and it will, it will do that. And the same, if you have a static, uh, no, if you have a, like a subdomain for static files, uh, that's supported as well. So it kind of gives you all of those missing pieces that we can do it in the dynamic nature of ASP.NET or any other server side technology, but something that the, the, the raw client side only cannot really do, uh, easily. So that, that's sort of the point. This is awesome. I like the way you think. <laughs> this is yeah, pretty and cool. I, and another thing that I thought was great too is I I've been forgetting about site extensions and what a great simple tool that that is and how e easy it is to pull those little pieces in that you need like those image compression and stuff like that. Yeah, because it's stuff that we always uh, sort of forget when we're building websites to, you know, have we done everything correctly? Is everything optimized and all those things? So it would be nice if we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to check any of that stuff into source control. We don't have to, um, you know, go to our designers and say, oh, give me a smaller image file, you know, um, stuff like that. It just We can just offload that to the cloud, literally. Yeah, I was thinking this all had to be done in the generation, but to use uh, one of those site extensions, that's, I didn't, I didn't even think of that because I was sort of thinking of a, um, you know, hosting agnostic approach, but, but in all honesty, I mean, my stuff is it's on Azure and, you know, why not take advantage of those tools? 
Yeah, and it's just a web job that runs in that site extension. Yeah, so. and it and it doesn't make it so. I mean, it doesn't even make it Azure specific. It just makes so it's it makes it so it's better in Azure. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You just get that extra uh, layer of benefits uh, that you potentially don't get anywhere else. But you on Azure, you get those extra things. And and if hey, I would have written those site extensions if I were able to have them hosted elsewhere. But Azure is sort of the only platform that has the notion of of uh, site extensions and yeah. web jobs. So continuously running. Uh, task that runs it's just a console app basically each of these site extensions and they mm-hmm. just run and they have a file system watcher so anytime you deploy or anytime a user uploads a new image or style sheet or whatever to your website it, it just optimizes them right there on the fly so it's really nice very cool so we'll have a we'll have a link to that in the show notes uh up next uh this was kind of a neat page that i found it's called GitHub. so it's GitHub.info, and this actually pulls the data from github and it shows it in sort of a neat graphical way. So it's it's uh, by language. So what I can do on here, let's say I hover over JavaScript, and I, I know this isn't visual, but I'm going to try to explain what's going on here. If I hover over JavaScript, it actually gives me a whole bunch of stats. It will tell me the number of active re- repositories, the number of uh, total pushes to those repositories, uh, the pushes per repository, uh, new forks, new watchers, things like that. And then also the year that that, um, that, that language appeared. So it's just kind of neat because there's there's you sort of expect a correlation in all these different metrics on these languages, but they're actually dramatically different. So JavaScript, for example, has, you know, it's number one for the most active repositories and total pushes, but it's actually one of the lowest on the opened issues per repository. And I'm not going to try to read into that. And then C sharp um, is sort of in the middle here. Um you know, open issues per repository is higher. Again, I don't, I don't know exactly what that means, but then the new watchers per repository is really low on this. Uh, so just, you can sort of go through here and, and, you know, I guess at this point we're kind of making, uh, you know, our own conclusions, but it's just kind of a neat graphical way to explore this data out there. Yeah. So just as a, as another recap for people who may not have got that, what we, what we're seeing here on the page is a list of all of the languages that, the different repositories are implemented in mm-hmm. and they're sorted um, top to bottom by various metrics. And one of the things I think is kind of really interesting is uh, myself and Jason were at a hackathon recently where we were debating with somebody else, you know, w- the popularity of different languages. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it really, I mean, here we're only looking at GitHub information. So that is going to be skewed by the types of um, people that flock towards GitHub yeah, but well, it, obviously it, toward open source and, and towards open source as well. But it, it's just interesting seeing where your favorite language fits amongst the others. I mean, we all think ours is the best um, or at least the one that, that's your favorite. But, you know, it's just kind of interesting seeing all the different statistics on them, you know, comparatively. Yeah, I thought the the visualization itself was amazing. And I just thought it was a neat way of of showing this information. I. I actually want to kind of do a, you know, view source and take a look at this. I don't know what they're using for this. Have you seen this technology before? I've seen other infographics that do something similar to this, but they do have a definite unique perspective on, uh, you know, the hovering and you can click on it and just kind of freezes that one where, yeah, well, you can still compare it to others. Yeah. It looks like they're pulling in a couple different libraries. I don't know. I just, I thought the visualization was really cool and I thought it was a neat way of, of just showing this data. And then it also shows the, uh, popularity growth, I should say the, 
the activity growth of the of the various languages on GitHub as well. So that's kind of neat to take a look at. Okay, next one is uh, pretty deep, but I think this is a good topic. Salted password hashing, doing it right. You want to yeah. kick this one off? I think this one is really relevant, and I'm going to kind of be a little bit hedgy here, but I recently came across uh, a database full of passwords that were just plain text. <laughs> um, so that's not the correct way to store passwords in a database. Um, uh, this one I, I saw, it came through a mutual friend of ours uh, from the, the Coding Blocks podcast. Um, he tweeted this out and this goes over, quote, the right way to salt and hash passwords and keep them stored in your database. Uh, they go through the technologies that are involved. You know, um, we'll go over that in a bit. Um, and what is the wrong, you know, what are some common pitfalls and why they are pitfalls? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this article, I think it, you know, the, the, the funny thing about this is when it comes down to it, this is not difficult. No, it, it's both very simple and very hard to get right at the same time. Well, I think I think it's not not very hard, but very hard if you're doing it off the top of your head. Well, let me put it another way. If if you were about to do this and you saw this article, this would be a piece of cake. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? <laughs> well, absolutely. Yeah, I, it's and, and, and I've known about the right way, but I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I think that's that's part of the issue. Did you want to kind of go through the, you know, the, the overall, the right way to do it? Or do you want me to do that? Um, you do. I'll, I'll chime in. <laughs> okay. Uh, so basically, I mean, what, what people end up doing wrong, like Carl said, is, is they'll either store a plain text password, which is really, really bad. And, and one, one, uh, symptom of that one way to know that somebody's doing that is if you do a password reset and they email your plain text password, there's so many things wrong with that, but that tells you that they're either storing it in plain text or they're using reversible encryption. So it would just be a matter of getting that key and reversing that. Um, and obviously their key is just stored somewhere. So um, one thing that, that, that people do incorrectly is they, they, they do password hashing. They just, they just take your password and they do a hash. And just to explain what a hash is, a hash takes in, we'll say in this case, it takes in a string and it gives you back, you know, some kind of, um, uh, some kind of string that looks pseudo random. And if it's, if it's a cryptographic hash function, just changing one letter of that string is going to give you a completely different string. So basically if I tell you, you know what the, the hash is for my password, that's that, that really doesn't matter. That shouldn't give in theory, shouldn't give you anything top secret. And uh, what you do is you end up storing that hash. And then whenever somebody comes to your website, they type in the, you know, the password that gets hashed and the hashes get compared. So it never has to store the password. The problem is computer, you know, the power of computers has, has increased so much that it's actually pretty trivial to hash, you know, just about every possible combination of, of strings and then store all those hashes into a database so that you could just do a, you know, select star from, you know, hashes where hash equals, you know, whatever that string is, and then you can find out what that password is. So even though it's a one-way hash, you can do a, a simple brute force attack. So there's this technique called salting. And normally, or what, what people sometimes do is they'll store a string in their code and they just append that string to every single password. And they're like, okay, well now it's secure. That's not the right way to do salting. The right way to do salting is to actually have, um, you know, a, a pseudo random uh, string that you associate with, you know, with each user. So each user gets their own pseudo random string and that gets appended to their password before the hashing occurs. 
And then you can, uh, you know, then you can figure out if they entered the, the correct password. The advantage here is if somebody were to crack one password, um, that's going to contain that salt, but it's not going to give them any information to, to crack another one. So, if, so the, the first, you know, key piece of information here is that it's extremely difficult to crack one of those passwords. And if you did, you wouldn't be able to, that wouldn't give you any useful information to, to crack the other ones other than the, maybe the, the type of hash algorithm that was, that was used, you know, if it was a, um, MD five or a SHA one hash or some other type of hash algorithm. And then the other interesting piece of information here, I mean, so, I mean, sort of to recap there, um, I mean, it's pretty easy to do this. Like I mentioned, it's, it's a matter of storing a unique salt for each user, appending that to their password and then doing a hash and, and storing that hash, you know, in your, in your database so that you can't, um, you know, you can't reverse that. Um, one interesting thing that I actually didn't know ahead of time before reading this article was, um, how some people, what they'll do is they'll actually use a, um, computationally intensive hashing algorithm. So, you know, let's assume for a second that we have a, a hashing algorithm that takes, um, you know, to hash a string takes, you know, a full second because it's just real. Let's just, let's just say it's really slow and inefficient. That actually works in your favor in this, in this case, because when somebody goes to log in, they're not going to care if it takes one extra second to log in. But if somebody wanted to brute force all of those hashes, they would have to sit there and sort of brute force, you know, each, each hash, which will take a second, which just makes it, you know, infeasible to do anything you want to add to that, Carl? Yeah. And the other thing that they mentioned as something really correct to do mm-hmm. is use whatever framework you're working on, whether it be PHP, Java, .NET, Ruby, use the built-in um, hash codes. Don't do something clever because you're going to get it wrong. Yeah. There's, there's been people that, you know, they are encryption experts. They've invested their, you know, careers into, you know, making and vetting um, these encryption techniques. They're, they've got it done right. Um, yeah. lean on these and don't do something that you think is, you know, Bob's best crypto. <laughs> right. And then there actually is code included in this as well. So like in C sharp, for example, you just pick that as a language and it'll give you some code as to how you uh, do the salting. So, I mean, just trying to make this as, as dead simple as possible, but you know, if you're ever going to do this or if you've done it, just read this article real quick. I shouldn't say read it real quick, read it intently one time and that should help you avoid some of these mistakes that, you know, are just, are just laughable at this point. Anything else you want to say about that? No, read the article. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please, please, please read the article. Uh, okay. So this next one was mine. So how Google authenticator works. Did you take a look at this one, Carl? Yes, I did. And I, I, I thought it was really a good article. Um, mm-hmm. so uh, what this is about is about uh, second factor authentication. And uh, what happens is when you try to use this kind of a service to log in, it's going to, uh, if you have it enabled on Outlook or Gmail or whatever, it's going to prompt you to open your authenticator app to type in a six digit code. And this explains exactly what's going on and how anybody can implement the Google authenticator. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people don't realize that you can actually switch out these. You can use the Google Authenticator on the Microsoft products. You can use the Microsoft Authenticator in the in the Google products. Right. Be- because this is so simple, it's um, there's you can swap them out with each other. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same algorithm. So 
Yeah, you can actually like I have the Authenticator app on my Windows phone and people don't realize that, that I can use that for Google services. I can also use it for things like LastPass. Um, so you, you know, if you open up the app, you'll actually see three different six digit numbers in the app and each one is for a particular service. And they're real easy to set up, too. It's a matter of scanning in a, a QR code and that gets them in sync. But then it, it, you know, I think the key to this is that it uses what's called a time based one time password algorithm. So basically the, the algorithm for calculating that number, one of the inputs into it is time and you can, you know, you could, for any particular time, you can figure out what that number is. So it's, you know, it's, it's uh critical that your clock is, is correct. Now, the nice thing is authenticators are usually running on phones and they automatically for the most part are syncing to cell towers. Uh, so it's, it's a non-issue, but, um, but yeah, the, the clock has to be correct for this because that's one of the inputs. And and once again, they give you the source code, how to implement this yourself um, in, in a generic pseudocode kind of way, but one that's no matter what your system is, you can implement this on your own. So yeah. I am actually itching to, because I just saw this this morning, <laughs> I'm itching to implement one of these on my own. Okay. Yeah. And this, this page, I mean, just so everybody understands like the length of this page, it's like a 10th of the length of the, uh, of the last one, the salted password, yeah, password if you hashing. Put, if you put this in word, it's not even two pages. Right. So this is, this is actually really easy. This isn't, I, it, to me, it was always like some, some magic, you know, going on. There was like a million lines of code in that magic app, but it's, yeah, it's really simple. Uh, let's see here. New dev center, lifetime registration and benefits program. Yeah. Um, Microsoft announced this week, uh, that if you have a windows store developer account or a windows phone developer account, uh, they're linked starting September 16th. If you were active, that is now good forever. And if you sign up uh, now or in the future, uh, once you pay your one-time $19 fee, you will always be a developer and have a valid account. So this is just dropping the yearly restriction and uh, making it permanent. Yeah, what I like about this is you can just, you know, you pay your 19 bucks to sort of go through that initial process. And, and then you just don't have to worry about it anymore. You don't have to, you don't have to feel rushed to, to, you know, to make an app or to figure out like, when should I register? So you just do it and you're good to go. Yeah. And also if you're working for a company, I mean, there's been how many times where it, whether it be this or a certificate, you know, it expires, you're like, okay, who, who's supposed to handle that? What account was it under? You don't worry. I mean, yep. And then to, are gonna be yeah, good. to get 19 boxes, yeah, that can be difficult. I mean, let, let's not, Let's not, uh, you know, understate that. I, I worked at uh, GE for about seven years and there was a time when I, I needed to, uh, I needed to get a hundred dollar license and it was going to be a, a month long approval process. So <laughs> sometimes it's it, the, the, the dollar amount in some of these companies doesn't matter. Just the fact that you have to spend money. So this, this is real nice because you can get it taken care of ahead of time. Yeah. Excellent news. Commander Keen. So what's going on here? I brought this up solely because a few episodes ago, you brought up that uh, uh, somebody had instructions on how to compile Doom yep. and get it running on current technology. Um, what happened here is Commander Keen was a, a video game, a, a side scroller from my, from my youth that I played constantly. Uh, I played it more than Doom. And uh, they had run uh, an Indiegogo campaign to uh, fund the development of a future version of Commander Keen. And as one of their incentive goals, if they raise so much money, they promised that they would release the source code from one of Commander Keen's, uh, quote, his lost episode. Mm -hmm. um, so in the show notes, if you go to it, we're going to have a link to uh, the GitHub account where they released the source code for Commander Keen. Pretty cool. Yeah, I'm just 
now all these different games are going through my head because I I'd play like Duke Nukem, like the original mm-hmm. side scroller versions, um, Pharaoh's Tomb. Man, I'm trying to think of what some of the other ones were. There was a whole bunch around this era though. This is just really cool. So I didn't uh, I didn't see if there were any instructions on actually getting this running, but this would be fun to fire this up on uh, DOSBox and and get it running again. Yeah, it's it's written in C and it has a GPL license, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, this will be interesting to see what people do with this. Uh, okay, what do we got next here? Oh, C Sharp 6 once again. Well, I know we talked about this a couple episodes ago, but uh, there was another article on this, and it's got some of the... Um, it's got some speculative features, but it also has some additional features that that weren't in the um, article from JetBrains. So that was the only reason I put this in here. Uh, a couple things like more literals. So there's like binary literals as well as some other ones. I don't know if they have a... I'm trying to think of what literal was, you know, I don't know if there's like a date time literal, like some of those things would be real nice. Um, I don't remember if date time is included though, but there was binary and I think another format, um, expression bodied members. I think this one was mentioned in the JetBrains article, but I thought this was really cool. So defining, you, yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask if you could define what that was. Yeah. You sort of got to look at it, but you can, you can basically use, uh, the Lambda syntax to define a method in your class which I thought was pretty cool. So it's an expression, but it's, it is a method in that class. Um, event initializers. So whenever you're initializing a whole bunch of uh, properties for, you know, a class that you've just, or an object that you've just newed up, you can, uh, you can also initialize events on top of that. And then this one is huge, 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 this name of operator where you can say name of, and then pass in a property name and it will return uh, a string. That's the name of that. So now whenever you're doing, um, I guess we've sort of solved the whole, um, what is it? I notify property changed or whatever, you know, we've sort of solved that there's, there's a way that you can get around that now, but you know, there's times when, when you, you just want to know the actual string name of this and uh, of a, of a particular variable and, um, you don't want to do reflection or anything like that. And, and I'll say I've used this a lot of reflection where you've had to hard code strings well, yeah, your... this is yeah this is to avoid all that hard coding of strings which is terrible um and then the last news we have here is the new d series of virtual machine sizes within azure and this is also my azure tip of the week so this is kind of a two for one but um this will be short and sweet we so there are um a whole bunch of different uh um new i should say new machine types in azure now and what's different about these there's a couple of things the cpu performance is supposed to be up to 60 percent better depending on which configuration you pick here uh so that's good and then they're also backed by um ssd so the local drive on those is an ssd so you'll get like faster boot up times anything that you have installed and executing is obviously you know going to load faster um, and then also if you're doing anything, you know, you got to keep in mind that, that the disc is temporary, but, um, you know, anything that you, um, um, anything that you put onto that disc is going to be, you know, accessible really, really fast. You know, so if you're doing some kind of distributed database or something like that, um, I find, I find it real interesting. They're using SSDs as storage in Azure now. Well, now keep in mind, I, I know I've talked about this before, but I got to make this real clear for everybody. So there's you know, your, your virtual machine has a couple different drives. The C drive is a, is a persistent storage is backed by, um, you know, blob storage. Then you get this D drive, which is this temp drive. This, that's what becomes the SSD. So it's super fast, but you can't rely on it through a reboot or things like that. Um, and then there's, you know, additional drives that are also backed by storage. So actually my comment earlier about installing things too, that's probably a bad idea unless you 
have some kind of mechanism for restoring that if if those files end up disappearing. Um, but this is this for anything that, you know, any kind of temporary work that needs to go on there. Let's say it was a build system or something like that. That this is really going to help out those types of scenarios. There's probably a million scenarios I'm not even thinking about too. Um, so you can go in the portal today and those sizes will show up. So that's pretty much all there is about that. So now we get to talk to Mads, the best part of our show. Uh, so we have a couple different topics that we want to go through Mads. So our first, okay. the first one is going to be web essentials. And I, I feel like a little bit of an idiot cause I've, I've heard, I've heard the, the phrase, you know, web essentials thrown around a couple times. And for, for whatever reason, I was always confusing it with the, um, what is it like the express editions of visual studio? And, and I don't know where that, that came from, but I was, uh, I was completely wrong on that. This is, this is actually, um, an extension for visual studio that has a ton of functionality with it. And it does run on the, uh, on the, uh, free visual studio versions, by the way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maybe, maybe that's part, maybe, maybe every time I've heard this mentioned, somebody said that as well. And I, I just got confused because I think like essential and express, they, I sort of got those terms mixed up in my head, but anyway, this thing is like, uh, this thing is, is just packed with features. I didn't, I didn't realize, uh, how awesome this was. So very, very exciting, uh, um, you know, technology for, for visual studio. So, you know, it's, it is a huge add on. I saw that there's, um, I don't know, there's gotta be a hundred plus features in there. So how did this whole project start? Oh yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely grown pretty huge, but you know, back in the day when it started out, it was, uh, it was pretty small. It was, um, it, it basically came from my frustration of the CSS editor in Visual Studio. So this is back almost four years ago. So um, sort of shortly after I joined the team and I took over the responsibility of the CSS editor in Visual Studio. And um, at the time, um, CSS was sort of a glorified notepad experience. So you had colorization, you had a little bit of IntelliSense, but that was about it. And I remember. It was not fun, right? Right. I mean, <laughs> You didn't get any help. You didn't get any. It, it would it would put in your like closing brace, I think, and that was about it. Yeah, you got a you got a little bit, but it really wasn't a lot. So, um, when we rewrote the entire thing for Visual Studio 2012, uh, we we created a brand new CSS editor. At the point, I already started working on what I called CSS Essentials, and this was for Visual Studio 2010 SP1, I believe. So it was it's it's a long time back. And I basically wanted to add a lot of the features missing for CSS. So I've been a web developer, you know, for many years at the time, and and I just needed these additional features. So I started um, building that, and but I never got to release it. Uh, no, I did actually release it under the name CSS Essentials for 2010. And uh, when we then did the the brand new CSS editor for Visual Studio 2012, we built it with extensibility in mind. So we'd never really done that before with anything. Uh, but the new CSS editor was like extensibility first. So how do you test extensibility? Well, you know, one thing is that the APIs work, but, you know, do they make sense? Are they easy to understand? Um, and to actually test that out, I started building extensions using those extensibility points. And so the next version of Web Essentials, the one for Visual Studio 2012, used all those extension points. And so it kind of grew a lot because I was pushing the limits on what I could do to, in order to test those extensibility points uh, thoroughly. I had to kind of build extensions that you would use them all. And that was a lot. 
So it kind of just grew a lot from there. And then it moved into adding features for JavaScript and HTML and workflow kind of scenarios and all sorts of other things. But it started pretty pretty uh, modest and um, with a heavy focus on CSS because that was the one that was the one editor that really lacked in functionality, uh, I thought. So, uh, and then I just renamed. So instead of calling it CSS Essentials, I renamed it to Web Essentials uh, not long after that because I realized that there's going to be more for this thing to do than just CSS. There's going to be HTML. There's going to be all this stuff. So right. that's why I renamed it to Web Essentials to make it more broad. Yeah. So this really helped shape the you know the the API available in Visual Studio is what you're saying. Yeah, so because what we did um, after that, we had, we we wrote a brand new HTML editor as well for 2013. Mm-hmm. We wrote a less editor, a SAS editor, CoffeeScript. Uh, now there's a JSON editor in Visual Studio 2013 update two, and all of that we did since since that time was all with extensibility in mind. So it was extensibility first. We, it was thought in from the beginning. So. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that the it was sort of a success testing the APIs the way we did back then, and you know, Web Essentials came out of that sort of, um, and it was such a great success that um, that was whenever we build the new editors, we uh, we did it the exact same way. So ha- writing a popular tool like this kind of leads you to, or at least in my mind, would lead you out to see what's on the edge and, uh, of the newest and latest and greatness in web development. Uh, from that point of view. What are the latest trends that you see in web development? Oh, there's a lot. And there's a lot depending on who you are, like what type of company you work in. Like do you work at an sort of an enterprise place? Maybe let's say you work at a bank uh, versus are you working at a startup in Silicon Valley? And are you, what else, you know, what type of applications are you building? Um, like they're very, very different uh, ways to look on this. And um, so if you look at, at just cutting edge web trends or maybe not so cutting edge, but at least web trends, um, a lot of it has to do with what are the frameworks that people are using for JavaScript and CSS, right? So Angular on the JavaScript side is definitely the the big guy at the moment. And um, it's also one that we actually support for Microsoft going forward. So we're working with the Google team on, on making sure our tooling works great with uh, Angular. AngularJS is uh, sort of difficult to tool at the moment um, with our current release, but with their 2.0 release, that's going to be easier. So we're, we're making sure that we have all that sort of stuff and all the latest web standards uh, coming out of the W3C and the browser working groups and all that um, are all something that um, people are asking for and that because Web Essentials is sort of a very frequently updated thing, uh, we can stay ahead of the curve and, and make sure that when you are ready to play around with something brand new coming out of the W3C or like Polymer or Web Components or any of these frameworks or standards emerging, then the support is already there. So we, we're very proactive when it comes to um, to sort of web standards and, and, the, and the what's next edge kind of stuff when it comes to uh, IntelliSense and validation and, and those sort of things. So Web Essentials helps us there because it's a channel that allows us to be much faster out with uh, support for the latest and greatest. And um, so that's kind of cool. So that there's definitely a trend in people looking to um, sort of the more broadly adopted things that maybe today only works on on Chrome and Firefox and you know the next version of IE or the the dev channel of IE will also have some of this stuff and and so people are very much looking ahead to to see what how they can leverage the browser as a platform which is kind of interesting. So Angular fits that 
pretty well because Angular uses a lot of these web components and Polymer-based um, um, directives and so on, which is uh, pretty close to what the W3C is doing with the, the web component standard. So Angular is actually, if you're on Angular, you're also at the same time uh, getting closer and closer to the W3C um, next generation of uh, of the web platform. So that's also why we like it so much because it means that at some point Angular is going to get so close to the to the actual W3C implementation that uh, you'll be able to throw out Angular and everything still works. That's that's oversimplifying things, <laughs> but but uh, but it's it's that direction. So we we very much like that because we're yeah. all about web standards. So so can can I also make the you know assumption since you throw out a little bit more forward thinking things into Web Essentials, is that stuff that we can foresee seeing just being built straight into Visual Studio? Yes. Well, <laughs> most of the time. Uh, let me elaborate on that. <laughs> Big asterisk. <laughs> so, fist asterisk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, there is, there is, um, some of it is uh, just going to be rolled in, right? So, some of it is ideas that I have that I just implement in Web Essentials, and the next version comes out, and everyone's got it. And some of it is like pretty small. It's like, hey, I want to hover over something and see what are the browsers that support this CSS property or this HTML element or something. Those things we can just easily move over. Now, things we can't move over into VS from Web Essentials are, are some of the larger things that require um, sort of a, a different approach. And some of it would be, for instance, uh, less and SAS and CoffeeScript compilation. So um, we could potentially move it over. Right now, Web Essentials takes care of compiling or transpiling um, these formats into CSS or JavaScript. And we could move that over to VS. Um, but sort of the, the, the world or the industry at large have come up with other solutions for that. And typically that's with Grunt or Gulp as a, as a client-side task runners to handle that. And we're seeing with Web Essentials that the approach that I took originally with these things was I have sort of a, a way that I think, okay, this is an easy way to get, um, you know, your compilers working and here's the output files and so on. And, you know, over time it showed that People need more than that. It's not flexible enough for people. So we've added a lot of flexibility, but it's still very prescriptive and there's no really way out. You can't replace the components that we have in Web Essentials with sort of your own logic. And so even though we have added flexibility over, over the months and the years, it's sort of not quite there yet. And if we look at Grunt, for instance, how Grunt and, and Gulp are handling these things, that's sort of the most flexible and, and industry standard almost way of doing those things today. So going forward, we're going to have Grunt and Gulp handle those scenarios. And um, and what that also means is probably the next version of, of Web Essentials will not carry those features in it anymore. We'll simply just have uh, Grunt uh, handle that. And that gives you way more flexibility. It gives you, uh, it's a lot easier to adopt because a lot of people already know these tools, so they know exactly what to do. But it also means that your entire team does not have to have Web Essentials for your project to work. And that's really important because Web Essentials have never had like a CI story. Uh, it doesn't integrate with TFS or MS Build or any of those things. So they, so, mm -hmm. so your de entire development team has to have Web Essentials uh, for it to work. And so that's sort of problematic. And especially when we're talking about like cross-platform and the new version of ASP.NET, you know, can run on a Mac. And so you might be sitting on a Mac in Sublime Text and we still want the, the same website to work and the same task runners to run the right things. And um, so Web Essentials is, is not the right answer 
And sort of we learned that. So that's why Web Essentials is good as well, is that we kind of learn a lot about uh, what people want and where the world is moving and what's available out there. And, and so we can make adjustments. So that's how we sometimes we can't just move things over into Visual Studio. So, but a lot of it can, and so a lot of it already has. We did a big push in update two and update three, and there's going to be a little bit more coming in update four for Visual Studio 2013. And we're going to continue that trend of moving things over. We, we didn't do that for the first couple of years, but now we're being more aggressive in moving things over into, into VS sort of, um, yeah, so get, get official support okay. for a lot of these features. It takes time. Yeah, and how do you figure out what features you want to put into Web Essentials? Oh, that's just because I read an article or <laughs> I have a good idea. or That's what I'm you sitting. think would be fun. and Yeah, I, you know, I build useful. a lot of websites all the time. So sometimes I run into something where I was thinking, oh, it would be really cool if I could just do this. And, you know, say, oh, wait a minute, I can just add that to Web Essentials and or write another extension if it's not a web thing. Um, and so that's sort of how my mind works these days is uh, if I find a hole in the feature set, in Visual Studio, I kind of just either look for another extension or create my own that that fills that gap. So no, I I think that's great, and you know, they, as they say, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Yeah, exactly. And f- actually, a lot of Web Essentials is exactly born like that. So <laughs> cool. So kind of another related question is, what kind of things haven't you been able to get into Web Essentials yet? Um. Well, I can't. There's. I think there are a couple of categories of things that doesn't make it into Web Essentials. One is, if it's not web-related, I don't tend to want to put it there. And so I've started creating a lot of smaller extensions that are sort of one-off, single-responsibility kind of extensions um, because they're broad. They have nothing to do with web specifically, but if as a web developer, they're still useful, but they're not web-related as such. So I, I don't. I tend to kind of separate those things out these days. Um, the other one is, well, if there's some technical limitation, right? I'm not smart enough. I don't know how to do certain things. That's, that's a lot of it actually comes down to that. <laughs> um, or if there are missing APIs. So sometimes you run into things in Visual Studio where there simply aren't a way reliably to get what you want to do with an extension. So if you really want to push the limit, you're going to, you're going to hit some, some brick walls every once in a while. And, um, and that, complicates things but then again there's a lot of things that i haven't done for i've been wanting to do for several years and it's oh i visual studio does not support it i can't do it and then all of a sudden i figure out oh wait a minute there were, the api is over here now i know how to do it and then it gets in so a lot of it's you know what do i how much knowledge do i have about the apis and so on um, and also file size you know we can't have like it's already grown a lot it's now 13 megabytes and it keeps growing but i i'm really conscious about that i don't want it to be this big monolith of uh, of things so i think about those things too um and that's also why one of the reasons why we don't have so for sas so sas is this superset of css that compiles into css and it's a language we have official support for it in visual studio we have a nice editor and but we don't have the compiler so web essentials comes in and it provides the compiler for sas and um we're using um web essentials uh, runs all those compilers through Node.js. So Web Essentials actually ship Node under the covers. It doesn't install Node. It has it its own. Uh, it doesn't install anything. It just calls the Just node. got the exe. Exactly. Okay. And so the problem is that the official SAS compiler is Ruby-based. The Node <laughs> version of the SAS compiler is using a C library called LibSAS, which is sort of always a little bit behind uh, the official um, in getting the latest features. But And 
and it doesn't it's not the same people they expect oh you know i can configure compass which is sort of a a framework used on top of sas that some people like oh i can have a ruby file here that configures compass to do something specific yeah well sorry i mean we're running it through node so there is no ruby configuration support right so so it's not completely on par so that's one of the headaches uh, that i have like i'm not really sure how to do that we could ship the entire um what's it called the dynamic uh, runtime the um, ion ruby libraries and all that sort of stuff to be able to pull it off but now we're talking megabytes and megabytes of stuff right right and so i'm not comfortable with that and there are other extensions out there sassy studio is a really good one for compiling uh, SAS files using the the official Ruby stuff, so that's that's pretty good. I can recommend that. Uh, but what we have in the box is like in ninety five percent of the cases, it's more than you need. It's fine. It works exactly as you expect. But if you have existing projects that uses Compass or any other more advanced techniques, then yeah, it's a little bit behind the official one. So okay, yeah, and I notice that's, I notice you have everything out here on GitHub too, which is pretty cool. Oh yeah, I do everything open source. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very cool. So. I'm just kind of curious how that's influenced the project. I know people can come out here and do pull requests, issues. I think I mentioned some of that earlier. But uh, how has that helped shape the project as well? Oh, a lot. The um, like, for instance, the entire Node uh, runtime environment that is in Web Essentials is contributed by by people from the outside. So, um, like before, I would run all the all the compilers and all that stuff through the Windows script host. I don't know if you remember that thing. Yeah. It's a very, very slow. It uses our old version of uh, IE's uh, JavaScript executable, and it's yeah, it's no good. So it needed to be on Node, and and you know that was contributed, and that opened the that completely opened the door for a lot of things. So um, like today, most of the development is actually not done by me, but by uh, the community. So there's a there 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 started to be a community that's been pretty active now for over a year. Uh, since it got open sourced uh, over a year ago. So uh, I'm really, really happy about that. So there's a lot of great innovation coming in from the outside. And um, and it also helps us because the we know by, by the issues that are created, we kind of know, well, what are the areas of web essentials or, or web development in general that people are focusing on? And so that's we get a lot of insights, actually, just by having mm. it on GitHub. So yeah, that's a good signal. Yeah. I know there was news of a plugin recently that, uh, that had Grunt and uh, Bower support. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I know you mentioned that earlier as well. Yeah. So this is uh, this is a new extension that uh, we built here in my team called the uh, Task Runner Explorer. And uh, so um, the next version of Visual Studio will ship with uh, support for Grunt and Bower and npm and Node, and we'll have all that stuff pre-installed when you mm-hmm. install Visual Studio. 14. It doesn't have that today, right? But it's coming. Today we have the the uh, sort of the CTPs and pre-releases of Visual Studio 14, and and none of those have that yet. But you know the final version will have that. And um, so what we decided to do was instead of adding the support for Grunt and Bower, and let me just really uh, quickly tell you know explain what those things are. Yeah, it's a good idea. So Grunt is a task runner, sort of similar to MS Build, but it's used primarily for client-side tasks. So a client-side task could be, hey, minify my JavaScript and CSS, uh, do some bundling, you know, concatenate more than one file into a single uh, output, uh, do image optimization, image sprites, compile my lists and SAS files into CSS, CoffeeScript, and, and those sort of things. So it's a task runner 
just like MS Build, sort of, <laughs> but for but for client side technology, and it's it's running on Node. And so Bower is this other thing that which is the uh, the NuGet for client side libraries. NuGet is really really good for assemblies and um, you know passing uh, you know NuGet packages for for DLL files and so on. It's really really phenomenal at that. Um, but it's very opinionated when it comes to client side packages such as, such as jQuery or Bootstrap or any of those uh, because it's it dictates what the folder should be. So if I install Bootstrap, it's going to put it in the content folder. And if I don't have a content folder, because I like to have a folder called CSS, for instance, well, it's just going to create a folder called content. So it's it sort of locks me in. It's more opinionated. And so Bower is sort of starting to become this industry standard of client-side packages. Not for DLLs, not for like runtime components, but for client-side packages. So um, think about NuGet for client-side. That's sort of what it is. And, uh, and so we... We're going to do this for for Visual Studio 14, but we thought that hey, we needed uh, we need some early feedback because this is a big step for us, and it's really a change in, in sort of workflow uh, that web developers using Visual Studio they might have. So we thought, hey, let's let's build it in a way that's compatible with Visual Studio 2013, build it isolated in its own extension so that we can ship it for Visual Studio 2013. Mm-hmm. And we've done that. We shipped um, two versions now. There was an update uh, last week, I believe, and so we're we're starting to gather feedback, and it's been really really good, and um, we got a lot of valuable feedback. We already did a lot of changes, and uh, that's really exciting because um, what what sort of is going to happen is, or what's happening right now that we see is that uh, you know web developers they go to let's say they go to Angular. Uh, website and Angular says, oh yeah, just go in and say, open the console and say, power install Angular. That's how you get Angular. Or you go to somewhere else and say, oh, use this grunt task to accomplish something specific. And if you're a Visual Studio user just using the Visual Studio tools and ASP.NET, first of all, you might not even know what grunt and power is. Right, right. But second of all, Visual Studio might not play that well with those technologies today. Uh, and third of all, it's like, there's a lot of prerequisites here. You need to install those tools first, and it's sort of an uphill battle, and it and it sort of splits the web development community in sort of two parts. There's the sort of the uh, the the ASP.NET Visual Studio old school part, and then there's the Silicon Valley kind of people, and and it's like, oh, all the cool kids are using Bower and Grunt, but you know, I'm sitting here working in my bank, uh, like some enterprise environment, and you know I don't necessarily follow along uh, all these trends or allowed to follow these trends. And I and there is a gap now between those two, right? All the cool kids can do Bower and Grunt and Gulp and NPM and Node, and the rest of us we're kind of stuck over in an enterprise scenario. So uh, we're trying to really bridge the gap between the two. So now that all ASP.NET or Visual Studio users will see it as second nature to to install Bower packages and grunt tasks and all those things, if they so choose so, right? If, if they don't want to, they, they don't have to, and we don't force you to. But now you can go to a website that says, here's how to install Bower, here's our, oh, sorry, here's how to install Angular, here's how to install all these different things, and you would know what to do. Visual Studio supports you all the way through. So you don't have to go to the command line if you don't want to go to the command line. You can use you know, right-click menus or keyboard shortcuts and uh, all these sort of things to accomplish the exact same thing. And the goal for us is to make that experience way better than it is 
if you just use the command line. So the command line has a lot of issues today. And this is the typical workflow. If you're using those tools today that you're sitting in the command line and, you know, firing off all those commands to have Grunt do specific things and install Bower components and restore packages and blah, 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 blah. And it's very, very disconnected from the experience that you have sitting in your editor or IDE working every mm -hmm. day. You have this console is sort of weird. Um, and disconnected because it's gonna you might have grunt task that runs JS hint. JS hint is sort of FX cop for JavaScript, and so you're running uh, you know uh, through grunt in the console. You're you're running JS hint and JS hint says, oh, you have an error in you know one of your script files on line 15. And okay, well then you have to you know go back into your text editor, figure out, find that file, and then oh, which line was it again? Back to the console. Oh, 15. Okay, and then find, uh, and what was the error message? Oh, I'm missing a semicolon. That's right. And then, so this whole back and forth, very disconnected experience. What we're trying to do is saying, okay, let's let's make that better. Let's make that uh, sort of in the, in the, um, or is it in the, in the Visual Studio way. And <laughs> this could sound bad. <laughs> I'm realizing this, but uh, we actually mean it in a, in a, in a very positive way, we, we're talking about the muscle memory you have when you when you build something, right? Control Shift B in Visual Studio should also build your grunt stuff. Should call your grunt build task. All those things, so you don't have to jump between the console and um, all these things. And also, if you run grunt uh, JS hint, for instance, we want the 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 red squigglies in the JavaScript editor as you type, not show up in a console window somewhere. We want to bind all those things together without losing the ability to still run it in a console. So if you don't want any of this, you get the exact same console experience that you're used to. But we're just saying, if you have Visual Studio, we want to make everything better on top of that. But you decide what level you want to jump in on. So you can you can add more and more, let Visual Studio handle more and more of those things. You decide how many of those things. And the idea is that if you opt into sort of the entire suite of uh, the features that we have for those technologies, you won't even know those technologies are running in the background. No, this is, yeah, this is great. Cause I, I remember when I first ran into Bauer, I was working with some, you know, open source front end guys and, and right away, um, you know, I ran into this, they're like, oh yeah, fire up Bauer and restore these packages. And I'm like, well, hold on, hold on. I already have NuGet. you know, this has half my packages in here. Well, what, what's going on here? And, and you had to kind of go into this different world so, you know, any, anything you can do to, to bridge those two different worlds is, is great. And then stay in that environment and just make things, so, you know, I, I don't want to have to be fighting with tooling all day. I want to write my code. I want to get the assistance that I need and I want things to be automatic. So this is, this is definitely uh, very useful. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you, you say so. And, and mm -hmm. just to your point of getting the tools out of the way, that's like super important, right? You never want, you never want the tooling to be in your way. You want your tooling to either be out of your way or one step ahead of where you're at right now. Right, right. And so hey. we're 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 not right now somewhere balancing, getting out of your way and being one step ahead. So let me give you an example of being one step ahead. What I mean by that. So let's say that you have a Bower package. Let's say you install jQuery over Bower, um, and by default, jQuery is going to be located in a folder called Bower underscore components. That's where Bower puts the packages by default. So let's say that you take jQuery from there, you do copy in Solution Explorer, you copy that file and you paste it in your scripts folder, for instance. Well, we're going to know that, oh, you copied it from a Bower component folder. So do you want to set up a grunt copy task to handle that automatically, for instance? So it's about, a, hey, we have an idea of what you're trying to do. Do you want to automate that? So we try to be like one step ahead 
like anticipating what your move is, what your thoughts are, and removing the manual step that's needed. Because you probably have to set up that manual step anyway. So why not have the tool do that for you? So we try not to be in your way, but at the same time, you know, guide you in the right way and help you automate things. Yeah. Make sense? Uh, yeah. Now, I'd like to just switch gears a little bit here and talk about a, another project that uh, you're associated with that, in my opinion, just really helps automate the tooling experience greatly. And it's something called Sidewaffle. Um, oh, yeah. I, um, like Jason mentioned earlier, this I, I can't stop talking about this. I, I just see so <laughs> many applications for this. Uh, in, in fact, I started a meeting at work in, in order to see how we can integrate this with our workflow. Um, I was just wondering if you could give a, a quick overview to start with and um, tell us a little bit more from where it came from. Yeah. So Sidewaffle, yeah, you know, even though it has a funny name, it's definitely not a, it's definitely a serious um, extension or a serious component. And so Sidewaffle solves a sort of a big problem. The problem is this. In Visual Studio, you can say, you know, new I add new item and you can choose between different templates such as you know a class or a CSS file or a JavaScript file or whatever it might be. But when you think about all the possibilities that you have in your head when you say add new item, what are you actually going to create? It might be a C sharp class, but what is that class going to do? Why is it that you can only choose for C sharp class, which is a generic kind of thing? What if you could go even more specific and granular and say, hey, I want a C sharp class that is a, an Azure web job or that's a Visual Studio uh, IntelliSense provider, <laughs> right? If you want to write an extension for Visual Studio. Um, because all the, the templates that are available out of the box in Visual Studio are so generic, there's a lot of boilerplate code needed for you to achieve whatever it is that you set out to do. And so there are a lot of helps there, but you know that's sort of the issue. Also, when you say file new project, there are a limited amounts of file new project possibilities in Visual Studio. So again, you can say, I want to build a console app, but it kind of stops there. It doesn't say what type of console app. What if we could lay down additional things that is closer to your end goal? Um, and so the idea was that, how do you create templates? How do you create project templates today? How do we make that experience better so we can provide even more options for you to get you going faster? And um, the thing was that it wasn't really easy. You couldn't really do it in a good way today. You could create a template. So any any web, uh, not any web, but any project in Visual Studio, um, you can go to File, Export Template in Visual Studio, and you get a template in a zip file. And you can make modifications, and that's fine. And you can publish it on the Visual Studio Gallery or send it to your colleagues or whatever, and they can install that pretty easily. The trick is to modify that template again after the fact. So it's absolutely impossible to maintain any of those templates that you got. And there are also funny restrictions on having multiple uh, templates in the same extension. So that's just a weird uh, constraint that there is. And so Syed Hashimi, who is the mastermind behind uh, how Sidewaffle works, uh, him and I, we came up with this idea of saying, okay, let's see if we can come up with a solution that makes building templates, whether it's project templates or item templates, if we can automate that in a way that makes it so simple that anyone can create a template pack. 
And you can you can imagine there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, scenarios where you want this. Whether or not that's internal in the company, you want to say, hey, this is how we want a C sharp class to look. Here's our boilerplate. Or um, for instance, Nancy FX. They have that's a framework for for the web uh, for ASP.NET that uh, they have a, a whole bunch of templates and they want to be able to maintain them and update them over time and be able to ship them easily and have you know CI integration and a whole build system behind it and all of those sort of things that you would want in a in a serious development environment and so what we came up with was a kind of clever idea and I got to get give uh, Sayed the full credit here he's a uh, he he wrote like three or four books on MS Build, and the entire thing that we're doing with Sidewaffle is an MS Build trick. And so here's how it works. Let's say you have a project, you have a website, and you want to build a uh, pet store. Let's just say you want to create a project template that's a pet store. And the idea is that you want to distribute this so people that use your template, they can say, file new pet store, and they can work from there. Now, what we're doing is that you're just going to build that pet store exactly that you would build any other project, in this case, a website. Then you simply just add a new project to your solution, and that is a template builder project. And it will automatically take that project, that pet store project, and make it into a proper template without you having to change any code. So you can easily maintain it uh, and update it no problem. The only thing you have to do is that you have to like enter in some, what is the description, what's the version number of the template, um, and so on. Just some metadata so that we have something to show in the in Visual Studio, and that's you have to do that. That's sort of a Visual Studio needs that information, so that's the only step you have to do. But it's not changing your existing code. We lay down another XML file that you have to fill out uh, some of this stuff, and that's it. And then the build process, again, this is just MS Build, will actually produce what's called a v6, a .vsix file, which is an extension file for Visual Studio containing that project. The cool thing is you can add more uh, projects to that solution and add them to that same output. So you can create very easily a whole uh, template pack with project templates. Now, item templates, which are the one that comes in when you say add new item, they're basically just flat files almost. So if you want to have a file called, uh, uh, what could that be? uh, pet class, right? For your pet store, you have a pet class, C-sharp class. Um, well, that's just a CS file on disk in a specific folder. And that big turns automatically into a template. So you can say add new item, pet class. So um, it it really democratizes the, um, the um, template building that has sort of been limited to only Microsoft been doing that in the past. And uh, so we're very excited about this because we're we're actually seeing some great projects being released by um, by this um, using the template builder uh, system today. So Sidewaffle is actually just an implementation on top of of um, or it's a project that's using the template builder uh, system. And yeah. at, at the end of the day, template builder is actually just a NuGet package. So if you already have a Visual Studio extension today, um, you can just add that NuGet package and then automatically give you uh, the full power behind Sidewaffle, which is Template Builder. Um, so it, it really adds a lot of uh, value in, in especially the whole uh, getting started easily uh, space, <laughs> if I can say it like that. So we have, like for instance, Azure, they've added some quick start samples and 
how do you get going with like storage and all these sort of things in Azure? And they're actually using Template Builder to build that because that's sort of the only way you can do that today in a in an easy and good way. And and in a testament to how easy it is, um, there's a YouTube video on the Sidewaffle page. I think it's like seven or eight minutes long. I yeah. watched the, I watched that through the first time. I believe Syed does it. And then um, after I watched it, I kind of played it again, but followed along. It took me five minutes to take a solution that I already had and turn it into a template. And that was exactly what I've been looking for for about a year now. Wow, like that's you said, amazing. I, I, I wanted to take a project that I had that's kind of you know, my shell project, do minimal things to it and do a file new project on it. And that's exactly what this delivered. So just the fact that it met su- such a, a deep need, I, I, you know, I thank you greatly. But then as I've been using, I've just seen so many different ways to use it. I, I think this is just something that once you get your hands on, it, it's definitely a really good tool for um, developers to, you know, at least play with and, and try to see if it'll it'll work for them. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that we've only scratched the surface so far and we're going to see more uh, applications of this uh, technology, if we can call it that. Um, coming out in the you know in the coming years and i think it's uh this is this is one of those places where uh imagination really that is the the only limit uh for what's going to come out of this so i'm very excited for it yeah so i mean kind of moving on just beyond these two i mean you've built a ton of extensions and utilities and each one looks like that it's solved a problem that you've had or that you've run into um yes. how do you, how do you balance the time you know taking to fix a problem for yourself and working around it or, you know, deciding to turn this into something I'm going to release. I think a great example that maybe I would have just worked around is that uh, add empty file. It's simple, it's small, but it's really useful once it is out there. So how do you decide to do something like that? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't, yeah, (laughs) I don't know. So the add empty file solves a very, very uh, important (laughs) problem for me. And, um, it solves two actually, but one in particular, and that is how do you create a file that starts with a dot when you're in Visual Studio? Short answer is you don't. It simply is not supported. Right. Unless you have this extension called add empty file. So the idea is I had this idea that sometimes you just want to create a JavaScript file or an HTML file or a JSON file, right? But you don't actually want to go in and say, you know, right click and say add new item. And then you have to search for the project template and, J, you know, I want the JSON one and then fill in a name and click OK. Why can't I just click a keyboard shortcut and type the name with the extension that I want? So foo.json. And then it should create a JSON file and open it in the right editor in Visual Studio. Uh, and let me, by the way, also uh create files that start with a dot <laughs> so visual studio actually completely understands file that starts with a dot it's just that you can't create one or right. rename i've run it i've run into that <laughs> <laughs> and so so the process is that hey if it solves a problem for me then it probably solves a problem for other people too and so if i know what to do with it and i know how to create an extension that fixes those scenarios what I'll do is that I will I will actually spend some time, like some hours, in, in making sure that it works on all the different project types, not just the ones that I use. I, I for instance, I do not use F Sharp, but I might want to test my extensions with F Sharp sometimes. I just want to make sure that it works for all scenarios, just so other people can can use it without it, uh, you know, crashes Visual Studio or anything like that. And then I just release it. And then what I do is that I always, well, almost always release my extensions as version one, the first 
the first extension, the first version is always version one, not 0.1 or like alpha or beta, but 1.0, because that sends the signal that this is, this is a, this is a solid product. This is version one. It's not like an alpha or beta. Now it might actually be that, <laughs> you know, the code might be like beta quality, uh, which I, you know, it shouldn't be, but it forces me to keep on going and make sure that I test everything I can and, and um, uh, react really fast when I see someone that raises an issue on GitHub or on the Visual Studio Gallery because it's sort of a – I play a mind trick on myself in saying, hey, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm out of the beta stage, which I am if it's a 1.0, uh, then I'm also forcing myself to maintain it. The good thing is that's a very short feedback loop. So within a week, it might be version 1.2, and it's like there's no more issues. So I play a mind trick on myself to to make sure that I put the time in needed um, to make sure it works uh, great. So um, I just like I just like writing extensions. I mean, what, what can I say? No, that's that's pretty inspiring. I've probably wasted you know ten hours of my of my life just creating those empty files, and mm-hmm. uh, at some point it it should have struck me that I I should have made a an, an extension for that. So <laughs> yeah, I think now the, I'm gonna uh, look for those opportunities. Yeah, for me for me it's the for me, it's the um, you know the notion of what if, or it would be cool if. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I run into something that I start thinking, oh, it would be cool if I could do you know this and this and this in Visual Studio, and you know then I just start thinking, okay, how would that actually work? And then I'm a program manager, so then my program manager sort of uh, um, engine kicks in and says, oh, I have to make sure it works in this way, and you know the user mm-hmm. experience should be really good, and it's you know does it matter whether or not I design this really pretty, or can I just use the standard components in C Sharp or whatever, and or in SAML or whatever, and and you know, and then I it kind of bakes in my head for sometimes it's for small things, just for a couple of hours is enough for me to kind of come up with the entire infrastructure and design and UX and all that, and sometimes it takes weeks, right? I've had ideas that took me like a week or mm-hmm. a month even to bake in my mind before I got to the keyboard, start coding on anything because I wanted the user experience to be right. So I've done this so, so long now that I know that if I just jump directly in the code for these things and I'm not sure about the user experience, I might have to redo too much. <laughs> and yep. so I like to bake my ideas um, pretty well, not a hundred percent, let's say 70% at least before yeah. I, I start coding. No, oh, good advice. So is there anything else interesting that you're working on that you can share? Uh, um, well, I mean, we're, we're, we're heads down right now with the, uh, with Visual Studio 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just finished, uh, some of the stuff for, uh, Visual Studio 2013 update four. So we're going to have even more goodies coming out. Yeah. Uh, I the saw web space. CTP2 is out today. Yes. Actually, none of uh, the stuff that we have from the web team is in the CTP2. We are, we're getting on the, the later uh, okay. version. So, um, but, and then Visual Studio 14. So a lot of it is about, you know, grunt and power and, um, web standards, making sure that we're completely up to date and and a little bit further out, and getting the Bootstrap and Angular experience uh, nailed. And so we're going to have some updates for that too. That's going to be exciting. And and um, it's it's very much all the stuff I'm working on is very much targeted like front end developer and bridging the gap between sort of the pure front end sort of scenarios with the let's bring the server side into the mix, including people who prefer the server side. So, you know, there's, we have a lot of ASP.NET developers that identify themselves as like C-sharp developers, but not necessarily as web developers or web developers first. So we have sort of these two groups of people, the web developers and the developers doing web. And so there's, um, 
um, I was talking about this gap earlier about like Grunt and Gulp and Bauer and how it all fits in. How do we bridge the gap and make everything easier? How do we um, come up with ideas and gestures and all sorts of things in Visual Studio to make it easier for you when you're working with Angular or Bootstrap and and because everything is sort of new and scary, a little bit scary, I would say, like, you know, are you really confident that the JavaScript library you're choosing is the right one, you know, in the long run and so on. Right. So we're, we're trying to come up with ideas of how can we remove that? How can we make you more confident in what you're doing? How can we help? Um, how can Visual Studio help um, regardless of what you're choosing and, and give you the support needed and so on? So it's, 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 it's sort of a new world because there's so much of it this time around. Um, and so... You know, I'm just trying to make sure that everything sort of aligns and and the deadlines are met and and those sort of things. So, so, um, so that's that's sort of what I'm doing at the moment. Okay. Yeah, I appreciate the work that you're doing. Ah, thank you. Yep. Uh, so let's move on to the app of the week. So Carl and I both have our own app of the week. Mine is better. I don't know what his <laughs> is here. It says One Start. Yep. So this is a Windows Phone app that is essentially a wallpaper generator, but it's really customizable. Um, when you have the transparent tiles, you can set a, a wallpaper that your tiles will uh, then be transparent, let that wallpaper show through. Mm-hmm. And this lets you um, uh, pick like a solid color. It lets you create a gradient. Um, you can choose a picture of your own, but then kind of tweak it. Um, and then I also have some in-app purchases where if you unlock uh, the rest of the app, you can do uh, more advanced uh, effects with it too. And since I like to change my wallpaper out every now and then, um, this is one of the the nicer UIs that I've seen um, to allow you to make a customizable wallpaper on the phone itself. Uh, the the color picker that they have is really intuitive. Um, kind of, it, it stays out of the way, but it lets you pick the exact color that you want. Um, it's just a really well done app. Okay, yeah, that's pretty cool. Mine's cooler though. <laughs> not not that we're competing or anything no the the pick the app that i picked this week was uh age of empires castle siege so i've been playing this this week so i'm a huge age of empires fan i played the original uh age of empires and then age of empires 2 and then there was age of empires 3 although 2 is generally regarded as the as the best of the series and you can actually go on uh steam and they they have age of empires 2 hd on there they basically did some some tweaks in there to make it so that you could run it at full resolution so when i heard age of empires was coming to windows 8 and windows phone 8 i was pretty excited um i was i am i'm a little disappointed because what i what i really wanted was like age of empires 2 but built for touch right so that i could be playing that on my windows 8 tablet um, or i could play it on my phone on the go because i don't i don't do a lot of uh you know gaming on my phone but I, I really, really like Age of Empires. So this is more, at least my son tells me, he, this is more like um, Clash of Clans or I think there's a, uh, I don't know if it's a Star Wars game or some game like that where you, what you do is you sort of build up your home base and then you can go out and attack people. And it's, it's sort of asynchronous where, you know, it, things are, things are happening even while you're not playing it. You're, you're mining resources and things like that. Then you come back and you, you get those resources and you can do upgrades um, it's pretty fun. One one thing that that's really cool about it is that you can, you know, it's tied to your Xbox Live account. So so whenever you launch it, I mean, it just you just start playing it. It goes through this tutorial, and uh, you can you can leave the game at any point. There's no, you know, it's not like a traditional uh, Windows desktop game where you sort of have to go like you know exit and and it's this big thing where okay, I'm going to save my game. You just exit the app, and then you can let's say you're playing on your tablet, you can pick up your phone. 
launch the same game and you'll actually be in the exact same place that you were. Um, except, you know, time wall clock time has passed. You know, if it's an hour later, you know, things take time to build. If you want to build something, it could be hours to build something. Like I kicked off some stuff last night that was going to take uh, 14 hours to build. So you come back 14 hours later and those things are, are completed, but uh, it's just kind of a neat game. It's got the age of empires theme, but it's sort of a, a modern, a game designed for mobile and this whole asynchronous uh, a battle type scenario. So my, my kids have been playing it. I've been playing it. Um, it is addictive. Uh, that's why I actually, I normally try to avoid this type of game, but I love age of empire so much. I was willing to, uh, to, uh, feed the addiction and then, uh, dev tool of the week. What do you got here, Carl? Yep. I have the dev tool of the week that I chose this week was the windows store app logo maker. And what this is, is when you make a, a windows store or windows phone app, you actually have to have several different sizes of your logo or icon embedded in your app at different resolutions. And what this will do is it'll take your base image, you import it into this tool, and you just simply click uh, create icons, and it'll scale them all and create all the images based upon your, your source one. So this is something that's just quick and easy to, if you all you need is the same image for all of them, um, it's a pretty simple tool. And it even involves stuff where like if, if it doesn't import it quite right, you can uh, zoom in and out by scrolling with your mouse wheel to get it to fit just perfect. And you can click and drag to move it around inside the boxes as it needs to be. Okay. I'm going to use this because like I said earlier, I'm working on a top secret app and I'm going to, this is going to be perfect for that because you actually gave me a logo so I can just pop it in here and push It'll, a button and I'm all set. Yep. And uh, usually that's, you know, even if you have a pretty straightforward approach, it, it takes quite a few minutes just to hit the, the five or six different icon sizes that you all need. Cool. Cool. Okay. Sounds good. So, uh, I am Jason Young. You can find me at ytechie.com or on uh, Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. Mads, where can people find you? I'm uh, on Twitter at uh, M. Christensen, and um, my blog is madschristensen.net. Perfect. And uh, Carl? Yep. Be sure to subscribe to this show by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. Uh, visit msdevshow.com. You can leave comments and check out our links and show notes while you're there. Send your comments and feedback to feedback at msdevshow.com. And be sure to leave us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, Player.fm, or your podcast aggregator of choice. Uh, you can find me, Carl, at wpdevguy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And Mads, thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. And we'd yeah. love for you to come on again in the future. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thank you.